like our mess is something that gets in the way of our mission. It's like, oh, well, you know, like I wish that I could like, you know, help a bunch of people uh, or accomplish this thing. But, oh, I've got such a mess, you know, like I've got all of these issues and all of this baggage and all of these problems and I don't have enough money and I have all this, you know, and it's like, but this, this pile of shit that is our mess is actually like fertilizer for our great work and not like a pile of shit that's in the way of the great work. That was Pace Smith, and you're listening to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette, episode 89. Welcome to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette, that's me, the podcast that's filled with refreshingly honest conversations about the wonderful mess of being human. On this show, my guests and I are committed to one thing and one thing only, telling the truth about our lives. No one's trying to sell you anything. I promise that no one's trying to get you to fix yourself or your life by offering a 10-day, six-step life hack plan for anything. I'm so over that, and I bet you are too. Life is complicated and messy and painful and beautiful, and we deserve more than a bunch of life hacking tips. Here at Real Talk Radio, I sit down with athletes, writers, entrepreneurs, parents, coaches, adventurers, artists, activists, and many others, and we dive deep into topics like work, love, sex, money, addiction, friendship, racism, body image, mental health, grief, courage, change, and everything in between that makes up life. This is an adult podcast covering adult subjects, which means that you can often expect to hear adult language, and we never shy away from telling the unfiltered truth in an open and honest way. With this mission in mind, you also won't hear any ads or sponsor promotions. The show is 100% listener funded, which means that we have complete freedom from corporate or outside influence. Awesome, right? Instead, these honest conversations are made possible by people like you, who give $8 or more per eight-episode season. If you're already supporting the show, thank you, thank you so much. And if you haven't joined our support squad yet, here's where I invite you in and ask for your help. I believe that where we spend our money is a real-time vote for the kind of world we want to live in. And when you help fund this show, you're voting for a world of honest, judgment-free conversations. You're voting to hear more stories from a truly diverse group of people, the vast majority of whom are women. When you support this show, you are saying loudly and proudly that women's voices deserve to be heard and that no topic should be off limits due to fear or shame. This is a show by truth tellers for truth tellers. And if these conversations make you laugh, think, or just feel less alone, I hope you'll go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more per eight episode season. As a big thank you, you'll get access to over 30 hours of bonus content with new fun stuff added every month, as well as our community discussion page, our virtual book club, my weekly behind the scenes email series where I talk about my real life in real time and more. So one more time, that's patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. Your support means everything to me. It truly does. And it's what will allow me to continue making new episodes for you as we join together to build a kinder, more open, and more truth-filled world. And now let's dive right into today's episode. Today, you'll get to meet Pace Smith. Pace, aka the Pathfinding Coach, helps sensitive spiritual nonconformists live wholehearted lives. 
She's an Enneagram podcaster, a Sufi dervish, a bi-poly trans gamer geek, an open source Reiki healer, and a tournament level dance dance revolution player. She lives in Michigan with her wife, Kylie. In this episode, Pace talks about how to listen to your heart even in our culture of conformity, and she goes deep into the tactics of what works for her on her path toward wholehearted living. She shares honest stories about leaving and then going back to her 9-to-5 job, and we dig into what she calls identity cages, and how the identities that we're so attached to wind up holding us hostage. We talk about a ton of other wonderful and challenging topics as well, such as what to do when your heart and your head disagree, how to follow your intuition while not rejecting the wisdom of mentors and teachers, and why so many of the most kick-ass people we know have pain or trauma in their past. Lastly, Pace gives us a crash course in the Enneagram, a tool that helps us to see ourselves at a deeper, more objective level and can be of invaluable assistance on our path to self-knowledge. She breaks down all of that and more, and I can't tell you how much I loved this conversation and how much I learned. I hope that you do as well. All of that starts in just a moment, and as always, you'll be able to find all of the links and resources mentioned in this episode over in the show notes at nicoleantoinette.com slash podcast. All right, we are rolling. Pace, welcome to the show. Thanks, Nicole. It's great to be here. Tell me something that you are totally obsessed with right now. Right now, I am obsessed with figuring out the truth behind paranormal and the supernatural stuff. Um, It seems like nobody can get their story straight in an unbiased way. Everybody either wants to prove that like ghosts, UFOs, the Mandela effect, whatever it is, everyone either wants to prove that it's real or prove that it's fake. And it is almost impossible to find anybody out there who is actually looking at both sides with an open mind. So that's a fascinating answer. I don't know what I was expecting, (laughs) but that is not an answer anyone has ever given. I need to know the backstory of this. Is this something you've always been interested in? Was this like a childhood thing? Um, it all started when I watched this old eighties show called Arthur C. Clarke's strange mysteries. And Arthur C. Clarke is a science fiction author and I'm a total geek. So I'm like, Oh cool. Arthur C. Clarke. Uh, but he investigates like paranormal supernatural stuff like poltergeists and reincarnation and UFOs. And I'm like, and he's pretty skeptical about it. But some of the examples that he gives and the stories that he shares on the show are just like, what is up? Like, that's so weird. Like, there's, there was a, a, a town in, I think, Scotland that had rocks fall out of the sky for three years and hit a bunch of houses. It's like, what? Like, they put, like, 10,000 hours of cops trying to figure out what was going on, and they couldn't figure it out. No one still knows to this day. Like, all <laughs> so many things like that. Um and then what made it personal was when uh, my dad went to a uh, a spiritual retreat and um, told me later that he spoke in tongues. And I'm like, okay, like I've heard about this, but this is my dad. Like this is like what? Like <laughs> the, I was totally skeptical and very logical and rational back in the day. And I'm like, but but there's something going on. There's something going on that I cannot explain. And I became curious. And that's kind of what started my journey as a spiritual seeker. 
And, uh, you know, now many years later, I, um, I'm a Sufi and I, so I'm on a mystical spiritual path. Um, but I still don't, I, I, I still don't know what's up with, um, you know, these unexplainable supernatural things. And my wife, Kylie has had like 20 miracles happen to her. Like, God talks to her in the shower. She's seen a UFO. She's seen fairies, unicorns, like, all these things while she was not tripping. Like, it's uh, it's amazing. And so I'm like, all right, well, this is my wife, whom I believe and trust. Like, what is up? What is up with all of these people sharing these stories, and yet, but still... You can't reproduce in a laboratory. What is going on with this? This is so interesting. So this is definitely something that I've, we've never talked about on the show before. But <laughs> it's funny because even though, you know, this subject, right, if we're talking about supernatural things, like that's very specific. But I'm really interested in sort of the bigger idea that you raised of kind of how to get to the truth of something without an agenda, right? Or like how to yeah. see past because it's true in so many different areas, right? To look at, you know, who does it benefit or, you know, who makes money if we believe X thing versus, you know, Z thing or whatever. And like had, yeah, like the search for truth, even within ourselves of the search for truth, what's true for us, like seeing past the conditioning and the stories that we've been told and yes. just like what is our truth versus what has just like been beaten into us by culture. And I mean, I have no answers at all to any of these things, but it's definitely interesting to me too. Yeah, so the, I think the first thing to be aware of the, in, in, in trying to uh, think about this is like what is the – like what are your own contact lenses? It's like everyone is wearing some kind of like metaphorical contact lens that shifts the way that they see the world. And almost no one – is aware or will admit that they have their contact lens that biases every single thing that they see and experience and think. And so this is why most people don't understand each other because they're just like operating from completely different worldviews. Like for example, if I am looking through a scientific worldview, a rationalistic one, and I say, uh, you know, look, here at these fossils, dinosaurs existed, ev therefore evolution existed. And if I look at it through a um, like a Christian fundamentalist worldview, then I say, you know, it says here in the Bible that God created the world in seven days, and therefore God created the world in seven days, and everything else is, you know, some weird weird shit that can't really be explained. And it's like, what's the difference here? The difference is in what is your standards of belief? Like if I'm looking at it from a scientific point of view, I believe it if it's provable by the scientific method. If I'm looking at it from like a Christian fundamentalist point of view, I believe it if it's in the Bible. And actually that's not quite accurate. It's like, I believe it if my community believes it, you know, or if people I trust believe it. And really, it's not that different because I don't go out and do fossil research either. It's just like, oh, I heard some smart people say that evolution is true. And I'm like, okay, cool. And so everyone's kind of doing the same thing. They're just listening to different people and they have different standards of belief. So that brings up an interesting question for me. What's something that you 
used to believe and no longer do or vice versa, something you didn't used to believe, but you do believe now? Hmm. Um, I think I used to be very skeptical. So I used to not believe in most things. Um, so some examples of things that I used to not believe in and now do include, um, God, but you know, like not as like a dude in the sky, um, Reiki, um, some kind of afterlife, um, miracles, lots of stuff. Uh, an example of something that I used to believe, but don't is the Mandela effect. Do you know what the Mandela effect is? I do not. Uh, some people remember that Nelson Mandela died in prison. Um, other people don't. In fact, he got let out of prison and did some pretty cool stuff and then died later. Um, there's, do you, did, when you were a kid, did you ever read any of the, um, there were these kids books that had a family of bears. The Bernstein bears. Yeah. How yes. do you spell that? Oh, geez. I don't know that I ever just, knew that. Just guess. Um, I mean, it's if okay I were to do it off the, off the top of my head, B-E-R-N-S-T-E-I-N. That's what it, most people guess. There's an extra, uh, like B-E-R-E-N-S-T-E-I-N, uh, but it's actually A-I-N. Hmm. It's the Berenstain Bears. Interesting. And... Um, there are a whole bunch of other, like a whole bunch of other weird things that people, uh, people are a hundred percent sure that it's E I N like, you know, like you're just like, I'm going to take a guess. It's no big deal. But there are some people who are like, no, I'm a hundred percent positive. I would bet my life on it. But in fact, it's A I N. So people have come up with these, uh, theories that is like, okay, like the, like there's a glitch in the matrix, something changed, like that we're in an alternate reality time travel has happened or like some, some, something really major must be happening, uh, in order to make it so that I am positive that the world is one way, but in fact it's another way and I'm not alone. You know, there's lots and lots of people who have the exact same memories of Nelson Mandela and the Berenstein Bears and the Kit Kat logo and Looney Tunes and Fruit Loops and the list goes on. Like there's like the location of New Zealand, like a lot of a lot of weird things. And so I was really into this for a while. And after researching it pretty thoroughly, I think that it is due to the way people remember things mm -hmm. incorrectly rather than alternate universes or any other kind of kind of you know supernatural unexplained explanation that's fascinating i mean yeah i've i mean i've read a little bit about just sort of the science of memory in general and how kind of wildly inaccurate our own memories are yeah yeah so i uh i think that that is at the root of the mandela effect and so i uh it's like you can find a lot of people who believe in everything and you can find a lot of people who believe in nothing, but it's hard to find people who believe in just a few things and are very selective about it. And that's one of my hobbies is trying to, oh, that's not really fair. It's one of my passions is trying to figure out, um, 
what's what's really true yeah yeah i man this is so interesting i am equally interested from a completely different lens in this idea of truth like i i think about it for myself my favorite journaling question that i've shared on the show before but is this idea of you know, what's true for me that I've been denying, right? Or this idea of trying to get to the heart of what's true without judgment. Like there's something that's interesting to me, even there's something I think that's very sexy about the idea of there being something that's capital T true, right? As opposed to something that's, which I mean, and I I think that's probably up for argument too, but which, yeah. So, okay. So this idea of like truth, honesty, you know, if we pivot a little bit into the idea of, of honesty, what's something that you wish that more people were just more open and honest about? I think everything. (laughs) I guess most things. I guess like occasional social politeness and not being completely open with everything. Um, I feel like being open and honest is going to help us actually connect with each other, which in my opinion, is like the most important thing we can do, not just for our own hearts, but to actually change the world. Mm-hmm. And so like, you name it, <laughs> I think it's better to be open and honest about it. I think it's better to be open and honest about our our feelings, our true opinions, our, you know, who we really are. It's, it's so important because you, otherwise, if you have a connection with someone and they say, oh, well, I really like you a lot, then they don't. They just like the fake mask that you're presenting because you're not really being open and honest with them about who you really are. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think a lot about kind of the reasons why we choose to share or not share certain parts of ourselves, right? And the role that shame plays, I think, a lot in blocking those types of things. And just it's okay. one of those things that's like so much easier said than done to be, I'm going to be open and honest, right? Like that sounds awesome. <laughs> but in yeah. real life, it is often quite more challenging than that, I have found. And it ties in with that question about being true to yourself, because if you ask yourself that question, like you've got to be really honest with yourself about what do I get out of not being open and honest? Mm-hmm. Am I trying to get, am I trying to impress someone? Am I trying to, you know, avoid some consequence? Am I trying to feel better about myself or less guilty? Like that, that forces us to be open and honest with ourselves. And we can't be open and honest with others unless we're first open and honest with ourselves. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So I'd love to talk a little bit about your work as a coach um, mm-hmm. and how you help people live what you call wholehearted lives. I love that term. And I'm curious what that means to you, this idea of a wholehearted life. Yeah, I think that's it's really the key to living a life that you actually want to live because wholehearted means all in. It's like, I, this is what I want. If you're half-hearted, then you can, like, you can go into victim mode and be like, well, I guess I'll do this. And then you do it, and then you're like, oh, geez, like, I wish I didn't have to do this. If you, but wholehearted is like, all right, well, here we go. This is what I'm choosing. And when you commit to it, then it gives you this feeling of like, oh, right, I'm choosing this. And so you don't feel like a victim. You don't feel resentful for like, oh, well, you know, I wish the world would be different. You, you take the wholehearted choice out of the actual available options that really exist. And then you move forward with it. This is obviously <laughs> easier said than done. Um, but I feel like living a wholehearted life is basically the same thing 
as living an intentional conscious life. It's like choosing things on purpose instead of letting them happen to you or feeling like you're forced to choose. And this feeling of like agency and choice like leads us to be more empowered. And this kicks us out of the rut that it's so easy to fall into in our culture because it's like, it's easy to just live life if you're following a script. It's like you do what everyone else is doing. You do what you're told to do. You follow the accepted way that society tells you to be. But it's hard to do that wholeheartedly because the culture's fucked up. <laughs> and so like, if it doesn't suit you, that doesn't mean something's wrong with you. It means something's wrong with the culture. Why do you think everyone is like, you know, constantly numbing their emotions out so they can't feel things? It's because the culture is sick. And so living a wholehearted life often leads you uh, out to the edge of the place that not everyone goes, the place where um, all of the freaks and awesome people hang out. And that, that's what my pathfinding coaching work is about. It's like, okay, so I've found that the normal way is not for me. What do I do? Yeah, I mean, well, let's talk about that moment because I think that it's, I, I mean, it's easy to under, to feel like in general something's off or something's not working or, you know, right? But to actually get to the point of, okay, like what's working for everyone else isn't working for me, maybe in any regard. And I think that we sometimes underplay how scary that moment is. Oh, yeah. No, it's terrifying. It feels, it feels like you're alone. And I think the... Like one of the most important things that I always tell my clients when I first talk to them is that you're not alone. Like this is like I hang out with people who feel this way all the time um, and everyone feels alone at first. But feeling like finding your tribe, finding like-minded people who share the same values is just so important, mm -hmm. so important. Um, cause feeling alone is just like the dream killer. It's just so hard to keep up motivation and sustain it. If you feel like you're the only one. Yeah. Which goes back to what you were saying before about openness and honesty being sort of the prerequisites for true connection, because if you're not being honest, right with yourself and with other people, then how are you going to have those connections that let you know that you're not alone? Exactly. And it helps us find each other too. You know, if I just like say on the internet, like I am bisexual, polyamorous, transgender, Sufi, and I love to play dance, dance revolution. And I'm a big fan of that one Britney Spears song without shame. Then other people who are like, Oh, I thought I was the only one will be like, Oh wow. I, there is somebody else out there like me. Uh, and so, you know, that, that being open and honest, uh, which is called being out when it happens to be a thing that is, um, you know, not in the mainstream is, is super important. So we can all feel less alone. Yeah. I'd love to hear, you know, maybe about your own, I don't know if practice is the right word, but about sort of how to listen to your heart in a culture of conformity. Yeah, that is such a good question. Um, I, so there's kind of an, an inner practice and an outer practice, which is also an inner practice. So my, my, my inner practice 
is um, the Sufi practice of remembrance, which involves calling the name of the divine into your heart. And so I do this five times a day, and then I listen. It's like, okay, I'm filling up my heart with connection, love, and oneness. That's awesome. And then I can listen. It's like clearing the channel so that I can actually like feel what my heart feels. Uh, sometimes I can even feel it in my body as kind of like a moving toward or moving away from something that feels right or feels wrong. Um, there's even a, a prayer that was taught to me by one of my teachers, which is, uh, let my heart be drawn toward that which is in the highest good and let my heart be repulsed from what is not in the highest good. And I love that so much because it's internalizing the guidance. It's not like, tell me what to do. And then like, I might get some feeling about what to do and then be like, damn it, I got to do this thing because guidance said so. Okay, fine. No, it's like, it's like making my heart feel drawn to it or repelled by it. And then it's like, oh, I don't have to force myself to do things. I just have to be open to following my heart where it leads. So that's like the first part of my practice. And then the second part is um, basically courage because it is scary <laughs> to follow your heart, sometimes terrifying. Um, and this is, if the first part is basically spirituality, the second part is pretty much psychology. It's like, all right, what am I afraid of? Uh, do I have some beliefs uh, about what this will bring? If so, are they really true? What's my motivation? You know, is there some is there some pattern that I'm following, probably from childhood, because it's stuck? Uh, I'm stuck in a in a pattern that's old, and so like all of these kind of uh, psychological techniques to help figure out like why am I feeling afraid? Of following my heart. Yeah. So when you started doing this work of paying more attention, you know, within yourself, with your own heart, I'm curious, I mean, I'm not, I know there's not like a timetable, but like, I, I think about it in like, in terms of, or like as an analogy with, you know, someone who's really caught in diet culture and then, you know, starts to explore intuitive eating for the first time and might not mm -hmm. actually know what it feels like to feel hungry for a really long time, right? Like to be so yeah, out of touch example. with that. So I'm curious what this has looked like for you because everything you just described sounds like a plus sign me up for that, right? Like that's amazing. Right. But I, I'm just kind of curious what the evolution was of being able to actually recognize you know, really what your heart was being drawn to. Yeah, I think it was Martha Beck who said that following your intuition is like following a black cat in the dark. <laughs> At least when you start out, it's like really hard to see what's going on. And, um, and so I think the first step is guessing. It's like, um, there's, there's a, once upon a time when I was in college, I had this friend, Ira, and Ira said to me, like, uh, oh, hey, I'm going to a, you know, I'm, I'm performing at a concert this weekend. And I said, oh, I didn't know you played an instrument. What do you play? And Ira said, pace. Yes, you do. You do know what instrument I play. And I'm like, no, I really don't. And, and Ira said, just guess. And I'm like, uh, flute? And I was like, yes, Pace. Yes, I play the flute. I'm like, oh, <laughs> right. I, I guess I did know that all along. And so whenever I know something without knowing it, I call it flute knowing. It's <laughs> like, I know, but I don't know that I know, just like I knew that I played the flute. 
and that's what intuition feels like. It feels like you're just making shit up, but it's actually coming from someplace deeper. And, you know, like it could be from like the awesome recesses of your own brain. It could be from, you know, some other spiritual plane or something like regardless of where it comes from, it's awesome. Intuition is so cool. And so I think the best way to start is to just act on it as much as you feel safe doing and a little bit more, but not too much. You don't want to freak your shit. And then just pay attention. Pay attention to what happens. Keep asking yourself, like, did anything bad happen because that happened? Did anything good happen because I trusted my intuition? And that kind of builds up the trust so that you can use it to take bigger and bigger leaps. Like, let's sell 95% of our possessions and move into an RV. It's like, I didn't just do that at first. I had like a decade of practice trusting my intuition before I got to that point. Sure. Yeah, well, okay, so that that's a good question. I was going to ask if there's if there's a time that you can remember, you know, uh, kind of a clear example of when your heart and what your heart was telling you and what your logic was telling you were at odds. Yeah, that used to happen a lot, but um, now I feed my brain and then check in with my heart. So uh, I think a lot of the things that lead us astray are false dichotomies. It's like you can have this or the other, but not both. You can either follow your heart or like trust the logical part of your brain, but you can't have both. And I think in most cases you can have both. And in this case, you totes can. Um, you just want to make sure that your heart is the boss because your brain is a problem-solving machine and if you let your brain be the boss, you're going to be living in a world of problems. It's like, hey, I can solve everything. Uh, mm. And now I'm super stressed out and anxious. Why is that? Uh, I wonder. But if you if you appoint your brain as like your vice president of problem solving and let your heart be your actual CEO – then you can ask your brain and be like, okay, well, what's the logical thing to do? And then check in with your heart and see what feels right. And then you'll have like all of the information available so you can do what feels right. Yeah. Some, it's funny. Whenever this conversation of you know intuition comes up, uh, for me personally, I'm always aware of when I'm in kind of a space of not trusting myself by like the number of like other people's newsletters and things I'm subscribed to. Like not, I mean, of course that's not a bad thing, but you know, when I'm constantly looking outside of myself for answers, you know, how does this person say that I should, you know, do this with the podcast? How does this person say, you know, this should be in my marriage or, you know, whatever. And when it's constantly looking elsewhere and I feel like I've gone back and forth between, you know, way too much outside input and then, you know, completely closed off to input. And so I'm yeah. curious kind of your, how you think about or balance this idea of, you know, intuition, checking with yourself, having that be, you know, the, maybe the most important thing, but still valuing mentors, right. Or, you know, other things like that. Yeah, I think like there's a uh, a saying in science, I forget who said it, but it's extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Probably Karl Popper, if I'm going to guess. 
And I think that the same is true for pathfinding. It's like extraordinary life decisions require extraordinary confidence. And so if you're going to do something major like, um, you know, like sell all your stuff and join some obscure religious organization, then it's like, okay, you might want to double check with someone you trust before you do that. If you're just, you know, like muscle testing what kind of food to buy at the grocery store, like, no, you don't really need a second opinion for that. Um, And so... Yeah, I think it's it's good to have some checks and balances. Um, in general, I think getting information from people is really good, and getting conclusions and advice from other people is often like a shadow comfort. It's like, oh, I think this is going to help me, but... Mm, you know, I'm probably just not in that in that space of not trusting myself. Yeah, that's a really good point that I, I sort of the way that I have come to think about it, or at least the way that I'm thinking about it now is, you know, before searching elsewhere, being clear on what the question is that I'm even trying to answer by gathering information, right? Because if I yes. don't even know, then I'm essentially going to be substituting other people's opinions, beliefs, you know, what they think, here's how, you know, X, Y, Z, how you should live your life. That will wind up being sort of, I adopt that as opposed to, okay, I know that I want, you know, to, to know more about this, or I'm thinking about making this decision. And at least I have something that I'm collecting information about as opposed to just like down the rabbit hole of the internet, you know, for all my decisions. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's like, sure, you can outsource your information gathering, but don't outsource your decision making because that's the that's the most important part. Yeah, totally. That's the part only you can do. So one of the small details that I find really fun about your career evolution story, I guess we'll call it, is that you dyed your hair purple the day you quit your day job. So I would love to hear that story. Yeah. So um, my day job is actually like really chill and like they don't really care that I dyed my hair. I even had dyed my hair beforehand. So it sounds way more, um, way more cool than it is. But my purple hair has been a symbol of freedom. It's like, you know, like my, my natural hair color is brown and it's like, okay, um, you know, that phase of my life symbolizes like when I was living a quote unquote normal life, like when my goal was to have a successful career and make a bunch of money and like gain the respect of my peers, like, like the kind of the the typical goal that you're told to have. And so my purple hair was a symbol, became a symbol of freedom. And it's like, Oh wow. You know, this is the symbol of following my heart. And um, what I noticed after a couple of years is that I felt trapped in the image I had created of purple-haired pace, just as I had become trapped in the, 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 the feeling of brown-haired pace. It's like I created myself a new cage with the bars labeled freedom. <laughs> and, but I was still trapped. I was still like, oh, well, now I have to follow my heart no matter what the cost. And um, it was actually super stressful. You know, I just traded one identity for another identity. I traded like, you know, career uh, artificial intelligence researcher for uh, like spiritual entrepreneur 
But the problem was that there was like a hidden comma damn it after each of those identities where it's like, you know, the first one was like, I will succeed at gaining the prestige of my career, no matter what. And the second one is like, I will succeed at following my heart, no matter what, which felt really good at the time. But there was this desperation about it that I didn't notice consciously that I only figured out later. And um, now I, I do both. Like I work part-time at my day job and I still do pathfinding coaching and podcasting and I don't feel like I have to choose one or the other. Yet another example of one of those false dichotomies. It's like, no, you don't have to choose. You can totally have both. And like now I still like having purple hair, but when it fades, I'm, I don't freak out. I'm like, oh no, like, will people even recognize me? It's like, no, I have brown hair. It's fine. What else? And so there's a lot more peace and a lot less of that comma damn it desperation feeling when I don't feel like I am uh, attached to a particular image or sense of identity. Whew, I feel I feel like that was church, what you just said. That's like the <laughs> truest thing I've heard in a really long time and something that I can, you articulated it you know, much better than I think I've been able to for myself, but it was very similar for me when I quit drink. I quit drinking and started running on the same day, like after a life of mm-hmm. basically inactivity. And it was essentially exactly what you described, replacing, you know, this kind of fun party girl identity that was, you know, very public and part of my sort of life and almost career. And then replacing it with this totally other thing that sometimes, you know, that's what we need to do in order to change, right? It's like a lifeboat of sorts to have something else yep. to cling to, which is fine, right? Coping strategies are what they are. But I definitely reached like a distinct and recognizable point when that no longer worked. And the thing that had once set me free then started to feel like a trap and that's that was honestly one of the scariest like you know I you know when people hear oh that I just celebrated my six-year soberversary and wasn't that the hardest thing you ever had to do and I feel like it was a lot harder four years later four and a half years later getting to that point of holy shit all that like this entire life that I built sort of like from the ashes of that other thing that I was like so gung-ho oh my gosh this is what fits this is going to be the new thing when that was no longer the thing that was a real emotional rock bottom point so I can totally relate to that if if this is not it then who am I what have I got I feel it feels like nothing yeah yeah and it's like it takes a lot of courage to like step forward into that feeling of emptiness instead of like running screaming away from it but like, I don't know about you, but I found that that feeling that I thought was emptiness now feels like spaciousness. Yeah, abs- I mean, and I think that there's so much truth and power into, you know, sort of what you're describing about these, you know, like false dichotomies or holding seemingly contradictory things, this kind of like both and approach instead of an either or approach. Yeah, yeah. Let me tell you another story about that. <clears throat> so um, I am transgender, which means that I was born male. And then when I was like 25 or so, I transitioned to female and now I'm female. It's awesome. Um, that was another big change that took a lot of courage and required me to, you know, trust myself and my sense of who I am. But when I first figured out that I was really female and that my body and my gender role were not suited for who I really am, I, I had this really feminine, like hyper-feminine girly girl phase uh, because I was so desperate to be perceived as female because it hurt so much to to not be seen for who I really was. And so I did, uh, you know, all of the stereotypically feminine things and I wore lots of pink and I uh, wore like, you know, heels and 
make up in the works. Um, and I, I, I pitched my voice really high so that people would on the phone could tell that I was female and all this stuff. <clears throat> and after I did this for a couple of months, I'm like, I did like, I just did, I did it again. I, the whole reason that I wanted to transition my gender was because I felt like being male was not being true, being perceived as male was not being true to who I really am. Mm -hmm. And then what did I do? I treated one shitty gender stereotype for the other shitty gender stereotype. I just made another cage for myself. I'm like, okay, well, let me, you know, like this one is slightly less horrible. So let me do this. And then I'm like, no, fuck this shit. You know, like I just want to be me. That's the whole point of this after all. And so, you know, now I still identify as female, but I'm way less uptight about my, uh, like, the, the stereotypical trappings of what it means to be female. And um, I feel more like me, and it's wonderful. So there's another example of where, you know, it, it felt like I had one of two choices, which were like the stereotypical gender presentations, but I can choose something that is more true to myself and not that is not in either of like the typical two boxes that we're told we have to fit in. Yeah. Something that you said um, in an earlier blog post or question that you posed that I pulled out that I really, really loved and have been thinking about, you know, for the last week or so was you said, who am I when I'm not being myself for someone else? <laughs> Indeed. And that's, I mean, that's the question, right? Like, yeah. who are we if, you know, we're, I mean, that's one of the aspects of your work that I really enjoy the most is when you talk about sort of the, the roles that people play and the fact that there's a difference between, you know, I guess what we would call maybe like our core selves and then the roles we play and sort of, I don't know, just untangling that. It's a lot. It is. It is. You know, and uh, coming back to that openness and honesty, it really reveals the truth about what your motivations are. You know, if you're not acting like yourself because you're acting like yourself for someone else, then what are you trying to get out of them? Or what are you trying, what impression are you trying to make on them? Like, and those are, those are really hard questions because they're often like, you know, deeply subconscious. Yeah. I also find, I mean, if I'm being really honest, one of my biggest frustrations is that, you know, this type of stuff, for example, like, you know, who am I when I'm not, you know, being myself for someone else? I feel like that there should be an end point that I reach where I know the answer to that. Mm -hmm. And then I can be done with it already. <laughs> like just, Which of course isn't the case. Like this is the type of stuff that's sort of almost cyclical, right? Like we're always, yeah. it's always a new season. We're always sort of reinventing or changing or, you know, the cliche of change is the only constant. And I don't know. So I'm curious kind of how that works for you to sort of, I don't know, keep checking in with yourself about, okay, like, am I performing for someone else or is this like really how I want to be presenting? Yeah. Uh, there's a, an Alanis Morissette song called forever incomplete. That is really beautiful. That is exactly what you're talking about, Nicole, where it's just like, yeah, I thought I would be done. I thought I would reach the finish line, but no, I'm forever incomplete part of this process. Um, yeah, I, I am very motivated by a sense of accomplishment and it's very easy for me to fall into that trap of like hoping that I'll be done. Um, and so the, the technique that I like to use, I call it personality judo where it's like, okay, 
In an ideal world, we would all eventually reach enlightenment, and then we wouldn't have to worry about all of these like ego drives for like, I want to feel impressive. I want to <laughs> feel like I'm making progress and all that stuff. But most of us, I would be so bold as to say all of us who are listening to this and talking on it right now are not enlightened. And so, like, we have egos, we have these drives, and so, like, pretending that you don't (coughs) is just fooling yourself. So, (coughs) pardon me, Um, given that we have these ego drives, how can we use them to help us instead of to hinder us? And so, if my drive is, I want to be impressive, then, like, Okay, well, how about if I give myself a gold star every time I do my spiritual practice? And then I'm going to be like, yes, I am the best at, uh, you know, sitting with my ego and letting it vanish away into nothingness and spaciousness and oneness. It's like, yeah, it's like it's my ego that is getting me to do the practice that's releasing the hold of my ego. It's like it doesn't make any sense. But hey, if it works, then why not do it? Yeah, about it, it, the kind of what you're bringing up about being honest with kind of what your what your driving ego thing is. I mean, I'm sure we all have plenty of them, right? But there does tend to be, I think, one that sort of shouts louder than the others, right? Yeah, yeah. And if you can just kind of harness that instead of resist it, you're going to get a lot further to wherever you actually want to go. Yeah, I, I read. Um, I think it was uh, where you were talking about um, kind of public speaking and stuff that you've done, This uh, that your signature talk is called Your Mess is Your Mission. And I would love yes. to hear more about that because that's a, I mean, that's a great title, by the way. <laughs> I love, I, I mean, it's, it's brought me so much peace because we all feel like our mess is something that gets in the way of our mission. It's like, oh, well, you know, like I wish that I could like, you know, help a bunch of people, uh, or accomplish this thing, but, oh, I've got, I'm such a mess, you know, like I've got all of these issues and all of this baggage and all of these problems and I don't have enough money and I have all this, you know, and it's like, but this, this pile of shit that is our mess is actually like fertilizer for our great work and not like a pile of shit that's in the way of the great work. And it's like, um, is there's it takes ten thousand hours to become an expert at something ten thousand hours of deliberate practice, and like this mess that we were dealing with, like say that it's for example it's like grief because like my loved ones keep dying on me or say that it is um, like working with intuition because I keep second guessing myself and it's so hard to trust anything. Like these are things that are attempting to call like, Oh, this is a mess. But what it means is that I've spent 10,000 hours learning to deal with grief or I've spent 10,000 hours struggling to try to figure out how to trust myself. That's something I'm now an expert on whether I want it to be or not. (laughs) I've already got it. (laughs) And like, why not? turn around and take that mess that I've been struggling with and turn around and share it with others and share what I've learned and share my stories and my struggles so that maybe some other people can learn something instead of have to go through it the hard way like I did. Yeah, that's fascinating. That makes me think about 
something that I think a lot of people, you know, grapple with is the idea of, you know, sort of like a life purpose or a calling. And I mean, from honest conversations that I've had with, you know, with friends, I feel like the consensus is that the idea that everyone has, you know, a life purpose and that we need to find and execute that purpose at all costs and, you know, otherwise we're never going to be happy is actually quite stressful. <laughs> and it so, is. because like, what if you don't find your thing, right? Is there something wrong with you or whatever? So anyway, I'd love to hear kind of your current thoughts on, you know, purpose or calling or, you know, whatever maybe you refer to it as. Yeah. Um, the clearest example of this, I feel, is from my wife, Kylie. She thought that she had found her purpose in life, which was to be a surrogate mother for alternative families. Because, like, the red tape is so hard to get through. Even It's pretty hard even if you're, like, a normal family. Uh, and so she started doing all this, like, stuff to get ready for it. And she got, like, a website. And then she – then, like, her uterus fell out. She had uterine prolapse. And so, like, she could not – and then she had a hysterectomy. And it's like she was so pissed at God for giving her this purpose and then, like, yanking it away from her. It's like, what the hell? And, you know, it was a very traumatic time. And when we healed from it – what Kylie learned was that a life purpose is a divine quality, not a physical manifestation of that quality. So it's, it might not have to look a certain way, but it's going to feel a certain way in your heart. And so to that extent, like whatever feeling that Kylie had in her heart when she was called to that surrogacy work, that is Kylie's purpose. That is her path. That's the jewel in her heart. And whatever, I mean, however it's actually going to look in the world, like that's, that is your call. That's what you get to pick is how to, how to express that calling, that jewel in the actual physical world. Interesting. So for you, how would you describe, you know, what your jewel or path or calling is? Yeah, um, my jewel is, um, it's a kind of, it's a kind of love, but again, everything is kind of love. Um, it's a kind of feeling of inspiration that is transparent um, okay. Yeah. Talking about spiritual things and words, it's fun. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's like if I, if I do things, I think wholeheartedness is really a good name for it. If I can do things wholeheartedly without, um, ulterior motives, and if I can share those things openly with others, then I can share my jewel by inspiring others to be their best selves as well. Sure. Well, I find it, I mean, very telling um, that, you know, what's not in that description is 
a specific job title, right? Or like, hey, uh, this geez, is how- that's up to you. It's like, okay, I get to pick how my wholeheartedness shows up in the world. Well, but I mean, for me, it's, it's more that I feel like it's bigger than, I mean, kind of like what we were talking about. Okay. Well, you know, you're pigeonholed by this career and what it means. And then, okay, well, I'm going to switch and I'm going to be a coach and an entrepreneur. And like, it has to look exactly this way. And that I have found for me that the sort of outward manifestation of whatever the thing is, for and maybe this this isn't true for you know the one percent of whatever of people who find their one singular activity right or career and that yeah. is it forever which you know I think I think that's more rare than not but that it does change like you outgrow certain activities but like maybe that the heart of or what I'm taking from what you're saying and feel free to correct me if I'm interpreting this wrong but that the sort of calling is consistent even if the presentation of it evolves over time exactly exactly which honestly is like kind of a relief right. It's like, yeah. Yeah. It's like, you know, it, I, it's a relief to know that you're not pigeonholed into this one thing. And I also find it a relief to know that there is a part of the whole one true calling thing that's actually true in a, from a spiritual heart center perspective. It's like, oh, like this feeling, this divine quality that I can receive into my heart and then channel outwards, like that's something I can focus on. Like, yeah, okay, well that narrows it down. Mm-hmm. So what do you make of the sort of cliche advice to, you know, follow your heart and do what you love for a living? Um, I, I think that it is dangerous. I think that uh, that's a path that on which you can learn a lot, but it's also a path on which you can um, burn out really easily. I did. Uh, I my my best advice, if you want a really long answer to that question, is to read Big Magic by Elizabeth Gilbert. Yeah, sure. I love that book. Yeah, because I I feel like that is a like one of the things I took away from it is that it is a lot of burden to put on your tender, precious, creative self to say, okay, now you need to pay all of my bills. And like how many creatives work best when they basically have a gun to their head? Mm-hmm. Not, not most, <laughs> not a lot. And you know, some people do work well under pressure, but with creative work, the pressure often kills it. And so I have seen and worked with a lot of creative entrepreneurs who are like, okay, well, I'm going to quit my job and do what I love for a living. And then they're miserable. And they're like that, that spark of creative passion that started them on the journey just kind of like fades out under the pressure of having to deliver results. And so I, um, you know, I, I know some people who do what they love for a living and are very happy doing it. And that's wonderful. Um, but I'm now very wary of people who say that without a little asterisk at the end, <laughs> saying like, uh, "Here's what to do if if this doesn't work for you, and you know, if your new tiny baby business doesn't start paying all of your bills in six months." It's like, wait a minute, like that's probably not going to happen. 
might want to have a backup plan. Yeah. Okay. I want to dig into this because I find it yeah. very refreshing what you're talking about, that it's, it's almost something that frustrates me a lot. And that I think is a pain point or I know is a pain point, you know, both for me and for, for a lot of folks is this sort of cultural narrative that's, you know, you have to get out of the cubicle and the right path for every, like you have to quit your job and don't work for anybody else. And you know, this monetize your passions, right. Which again, like you said, there's some people that are doing that and are very happy and very successful, but that it's, it, it to me again, is this idea of sort of a black and white all or nothing, right? Like you're either working a job for someone else and like, that's, you know, not the best freest, you know, self-expression and, mm-hmm. you know, that it's the more noble thing to do, you know, to be working for yourself and that, you know, there's something wrong with you if you can't figure out how to do that and also pay your bills, right? This is something that I wish people were more open and honest about. And yes. yeah, like I just, I think there's so much truth in what you're saying of, and, you know, of course it's one of the reasons I love Liz Gilbert as well, you know, like her message on this, that it's like, what if it's fine? to love something and it's just a hobby or what if it's fine that it's like I think about that in terms of the podcast like it's a part-time job it's certainly not a it's not a full-time income right like is is that okay is that enough like it's these are the types of questions that I feel like I don't know we sort of blow past in this rush to like look at my shiny website and you know like I'm gonna earn a six-figure thing with my passion project (laughs) yeah and, you know, coming back to openness and honesty, I think it comes down to what is your true deep down motivation for wanting to do what you love for a living? If your true deep down motivation is because you really hate your boss, that's probably not going to be enough to sustain you through like creating an entirely new business. You might want to look into other options. If your if your true deep down motivation is because you went to a convention where a bunch of people on the stage were getting really excited and playing motivational music and then like the, somebody said yes or yes and you said yes, that's probably not the best motivation <laughs> for you to commit to a major lifestyle change. And so, um, you know, again, you've, you've got to be really open and honest with yourself about why, why you want it. If you want it, don't let anyone stop you. But if somebody else is trying to sell you something, then just be really sure that you want to buy it before you, you know, like fall into the hype. Yeah. So would you tell me about, I don't know, either the day or like the conversation that led you to deciding to go back to your day job part-time? Yeah. Um, it was right after reading Big Magic and Kylie and I were on a road trip to the Atlantic coast and uh, I I started talking about, um, you know, feeling vaguely dissatisfied um, with my business. And she said, Pace, I cannot take this anymore. Every six months, you feel vaguely dissatisfied about your business. And then you do something that convinces yourself it's going to be different this time. You come up with a new product to launch. You rebrand your website. You create a new podcast. You know, like whatever it is, you say, oh, it's going to be different this time. But you've been doing it for five years. And I just can't take it anymore. It's too stressful being in this business with you, being in this relationship with you in this business. And, and I was like, well, holy shit. <laughs> I didn't really realize that this was a cycle. Um, and I started thinking about it in terms of what I had recently learned 
from my Enneagram study group, which is another tangent we can talk about in a bit. But the relevant bit is um, basically this triangle that we've been talking about, where like on the on the bottom left of the triangle, you have a firm, which is like, I say yes to this thing. In my case, I said yes to uh, like the nine to five. And then on the other bottom side of the triangle, you have deny, which is I say no to whatever I used to affirm. In my case, I said no to the nine to five. And then you've got this point at the top of the triangle, which is reconcile. And it's like, oh, I don't have to choose one or the other. I can find a viewpoint that transcends and includes both of them from which they don't feel like opposites. It's kind of like my perspective shifts from like a painting of uh, an artificial intelligence researcher and then like I scribble over that and then I have a painting of a spiritual entrepreneur. But then when I when my perspective shifts, it doesn't I don't change the painting. It's like I'm the canvas instead of whatever is painted on the canvas. And it doesn't really matter what's on me because my sense of self has actually changed and I'm not as attached. It's like, yeah, I can draw something different on me, but that's not going to change me because I'm the canvas, not the painting. And so all of these like, you know, really cool sounding philosophical, spiritual ideas actually rooted in my brain based on this specific conversation that I had with Kylie where I saw myself in the past being at the at the affirm point of the triangle I saw myself in this moment being at the deny point of the triangle saying no I will never do the 9 to 5 which is again just as much of a cage and then I um how did I do it I did an inner reverse haggle I, I did inner work in which I personified the two different parts of myself that were attached to each of these viewpoints. In my case, it was safety and freedom. The, the part that wanted a, a solid career was safety, uh, safety pace. And then the part that wanted to you know, like be a wild and crazy entrepreneur was the freedom pace. And I journaled. And I wrote down, like, here's what safety pace needs. And then I journaled as freedom pace. And I, I'm like, okay, here's what freedom pace needs. And they're like, at loggerheads, cannot even find any kind of resolution. And then I asked safety pace to tell me why freedom is necessary for us to survive and thrive. And then I asked Freedom Pace to tell me why safety is necessary for us to survive and to thrive. And then some whack-ass magical shit happened in my brain and my heart, and boom. I, I didn't feel that contradiction anymore. Mm. Oh, that's a powerful story. Yeah, it was amazing. It was like all of that tension from the polarity, just it kind of like collapsed in on itself. And I'm like, well, that was totally awesome. Yeah, I mean, and just, I mean, obviously it was, you know, I'm sure 
took more time and was, you know, more challenging than it can sound to someone listening, like when it's wrapped up in a nice story. Right. But right. those are the highlights. But and I, it kind of I, skips over the, like all the, the grunt work to get there. Yeah. But I get why it works. Like it's, it's like you're really kind of bringing up something that I already believe to be true. This idea that, you know, it's important to look at what we're overly attached to when it comes yeah. to especially our identity, right? Because I think a lot mm-hmm. of these are problems of identity, almost everything, right? Like when, that yes. you're talking about comes down to, you know, what does it mean if you're someone who, you know, wears the identity of a nine to five job? What does it mean right. if you're what someone does who does it? about who I am? Exactly, mm-hmm. right? And that sometimes, I don't, like, I feel like, the times I've been the most dissatisfied is when I'm just like living totally in these identities. And like, I've forgotten. I mean, again, it's that question, you know, that we were talking about before of, you know, who are you if you're not living for other people or, you know, whatever the, yep. the who am I when I'm not being myself for someone else that, you know, these identities, these things that we do, they're, they're what we do, but they're not necessarily who we are. And I think that that's can be a fine and, you know, sometimes like sticky line. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, and that's often what it comes down to. Like it's, it's kind of like, um, confusing motion with progress. It's like, I felt like I felt so exhausted because I was striving so hard and running so hard. But then when I take a step back and think about like, what, what am I really doing? I realized that I've been running in circles the whole time. And if I could just like walk in the direction that I want to go, then I wouldn't be exhausted and I'd actually be making more progress. It's like, what part of me has confused feeling exhausted with progress why is this a why is this a uh, a goal that was worth striving for? It's not, and you know, like I have an actual answer to that based on years of therapy. It has to do with my mom, unsurprisingly, like most things in therapy do. <laughs> but um, but you know, like just being able to ask the question even before you find out the answer is is the starting point. Yeah, I mean, that's I think that's pretty profound. This idea of confusing motion with progress, and for me, I would say I think that's you know, for a lot of folks, partially, if not, you know, totally rooted in our, uh, I don't know, the way that we think that sort of busyness and productivity equals worth or value, right? That yeah. it's like, well, if I am have all this motion, right, and I'm going in all these circles, then that must mean, you know, something impressive about me and my value. Yeah. yeah. And the nine to five culture certainly emphasizes that because like, what do most people get paid for? Looking busy and putting in hours, not actually delivering value. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to go back to something you mentioned, um, you know, in passing your Enneagram, I think you said study group. Um, and I would love, so I'm like very lightly familiar with what this is in that, like I've heard the word before and sort of know it, but I would love to do kind of like a little crash course or can you explain about the Enneagram? Yeah, the Enneagram is a map for personal and spiritual growth. It's a field of study that kind of rides the line between psychology and spirituality. Um, It analyzes like your core motivations, which is like a very psychological thing to do, and then like puts you into one of uh, of nine uh, personality types based on your core motivation. But then it doesn't stop there like a lot of other systems do. Uh, It says, okay, well, here's what you can do to grow. Here's what you can do to not be limited 
by this particular coping strategy that you learned when you were young. And so there are nine different Enneagram types that are talked about with numbers that everybody agrees on <clears throat> and with names that nobody agrees on. <laughs> <laughs> and um, do you want me to, to give a quick overview of like of what they are? Yeah, no, I, I'm super interested. I, I It was recommended to me a couple of years ago that I, I don't know how you go through the process. I don't know if it's like you take this quiz or you do. I mean, I'm sure it's more in depth than that. But um, for any number of reasons, I never followed up on it. But it's always been in the back of my mind. So that was also of interest to me when I saw that that was a big part of your work that, OK, maybe this is a sign that I'm supposed to be going into this more. So, yeah, totally. Go for it. Yeah. So um, type one is called the reformer. And the jewel in the heart of type one is like goodness and rightness. And so if I'm a one, then I have this goodness and rightness in my heart, but I've forgotten it. And so I, I try to express it in the world, but instead of getting the true goodness, I get like judgmental nitpicky perfectionism. And I'm just trying to help. I'm trying to help other people do things the right way, but since I'm out of touch with my own sense of goodness and rightness, I'm going to hate on myself because I never feel like I'm good enough. And uh, <clears throat> I'm going to you know, take it out in imperfect ways. So like all of these different nine types are strategies that we learn when we're young to compensate for that like feeling of uh, – for, for the jewel in our hearts that we, that we have forgotten. And it's our path in life to remember it. As for like a quiz, the first step is like listen to this brief overview I'm going to give and like see if you recognize yourself okay. or anyone you know in it. Type 2 is called the helper or the giver. And the jewel in the heart of type 2 is unconditional love. But if you try to get that un that unconditional love and try to give it, it accidentally comes out as conditional love, like giving to get. It's like, okay, well, I'm going to give so much and then I'm going to feel really proud of how much I gave. I'm going to give so much, and then I'm going to feel like, what would you do without me? I'm indispensable. Mm. I'm going to give so much, and then I'm going to be like, all right, so when's it my turn? Why do I never get to receive? And so this, this passive aggressiveness or this resentment <clears throat> is actually pride, even though if I'm a two, I might feel humble. Um <clears throat> Secretly, I, there are strings attached to these gifts that I'm giving. And so mm, the path of growth for type two is to you know, get honest about, uh, about what this core motivation is. Uh, type three is called the achiever or the performer. And the jewel in the heart of type three is like value and glory. And so if, if I'm at my... Uh, I got to I got to give some a couple of examples. I forgot to do it with the first two. Um, an example of a type one is Gandhi. An example of a type two is Mother Teresa. Obviously, okay. these are people at their best <laughs> because those are the ones who usually get famous. <clears throat> an example of a type three is Oprah Winfrey. Um, when at her best, she can be super inspiring and um, uses that to like lift up other people as well. <clears throat> but the the danger for a type three is to want to make a good impression on others, and maybe that's not the most authentic truth. Ending up being more concerned with image 
than with what's real. Mm. <clears throat> and, and so I'm, I'm striving for that true value, but I've forgotten that I'm valuable for who I am, not for what I do. And so I'm going to do things to try to earn the value that I've forgotten that I already have. And I am actually a type three. Okay. That's, that's my shtick. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, type four is the romantic or the individualist. And if I am a four, then the jewel in my heart is depth. And I can journey to the depths of my innermost soul and my innermost pain. And if I'm not careful, I'm going to get stuck there. And I'm going to feel trapped by my whirlwind of emotion that's so intense, it feels like it's all that there is. I'm going to feel longing and envy for the things that other people have that if I only had, then I would finally feel okay. But if I can come back up, if I can surface from that deep emotional dive, then I can uh, share it with the world. Like Alanis Morissette is a four. And so like, what a great example of like diving into those deep emotions and then like finding a way to share it with the world in a way that's of service. Um, and so the path of growth for type four is like learning that my emotions are not the whole story, not getting completely caught up in them, being the eye of the hurricane instead of the, the, the windy bustle of the hurricane. Sure. Type five is the investigator or the observer. If I'm a type five, then the jewel in my heart is illumination. And so I have the ability to see things clearly. But I've forgotten that I have that, and so I'm going to hoard information. I may even hoard physical items um, because I never feel ready to actually step out. I always feel like I need to know a little bit more. I need to be a little more certain. I'll feel a little more safe. If I am going to a social gathering, I'm going to want to know exactly how long it's going to last. I'd probably rather observe it from behind a one-way mirror before I actually go out there. Um, and so instead of true illumination, I'm, I've got this, this kind of hoarding instead. And so if I'm a five, my path of growth is to step out before I'm ready, before I have all the information, to practice getting in touch with my informed intuition and experiential learning uh, instead of separating myself out. Type six is the loyal skeptic. Uh, if I'm a six, then my jewel is awakeness. Uh, but since I've lost touch with my inner sense of awakeness, I'm going to try to get it, but accidentally end up with alertness instead of awakeness, a kind of a hypervigilance. And so I'm always going to be on the lookout for who can I trust, who can I not trust, where's the threat, where's the danger. Um, I'm going to be looking outside myself for that awakeness and guidance instead of trusting myself. And so this can show up in a couple of different ways. It can either show up as like, oh, these people or this person, this is a person I trust. Yes, I'm going to, uh, I, I belong to this organization. It is a very important part of who I am. Or it could go the other way and say, these people are not who I trust. Um, an example of, uh, two examples of type sixes are um, 
Ellen DeGeneres and Michael Moore. Ellen DeGeneres is the these are the people I trust type. Michael Moore is the people these are the people I don't trust type. This is super interesting. By the way, I'm like, <laughs> yeah. Okay, yeah, no, I'm really into this. And I forgot to give you a type five. Albert Einstein's like the canonical type five okay. observer. Um, so on to type seven. Type seven is the enthusiast. And if I'm a type seven, the jewel in my heart is joy and freedom. Uh, but since I've lost touch with the true joy and freedom inside me, I'm going to replace it with hype. I'm going to replace it with like always being excited about things and being the cruise director. So everyone around me is always having a great time. But I don't have the freedom to slow down and sit with my own thoughts and feelings. Sitting and being in the present moment is terrifying for me if I'm a seven because I don't want to experience pain. I don't want to experience any kind of unpleasant emotion. I'd rather just like get on to doing the next thing or planning the next thing because that takes me out of the present moment into the future. Mm. And so... Um, uh, two examples of sevens are uh, Jim Carrey and Robin Williams. It's like you can see that ebullience and and like almost like manic level of joy, but also like as especially evident with Robin Williams, it's like there's this desperation of like trying to not like feel those negative emotions there too. Uh, and so if I'm a seven, my path of growth is to slow down. It's like sobriety, like just being present in the moment, kind of like feeling the soles of my feet. It's very unimpressive. It's, it's not fun, but it gives you that true freedom instead of the fake freedom of like keeping my options open. Type eight is the challenger. Dr. Martin Luther King was a challenger. And uh, if I'm a challenger, the jewel in my heart is strength and aliveness. And since I have lost touch with my inner strength, I'm going to try to replace it with intensity. I'm like, okay, well, that, that feels like strength, right? Like maybe if I go, you know, like pick a fight or do some extreme sports or just like always try to keep myself on top so that no one can ever betray me, then, um, you know, that's going to help me feel strong, but it's not that true strength. It's just intensity. Um, Compare and contrast King with Gandhi, who was a one. The motivations were different. Uh, type one was the reformer, who is about goodness and rightness. And so Gandhi's like, okay, well, this is the right thing to do. I'm standing up for justice. With King, it was personal. It was like, don't fuck with my people. And that, you know, that's a two civil rights leaders with very different core motivations um, and very different Enneagram types. Uh, eight's path of growth is to be vulnerable. Uh, it's to realize that true strength is not something that you can have in a vacuum. Uh, you know, you can be strong enough to, to, to bend and to, uh, trust, which is terrifying, mm -hmm. <laughs> but, uh, the path of growth always is. And lastly, type nine is the, the peacemaker or the peace seeker. And, the jewel in the heart of type nine is wholeness. And the mistake that nines make is turning this wholeness, which is like a jelly donut, 
into a donut, which is <laughs> without the middle. They take themselves out of the wholeness. And they're like, oh, okay, well, if I don't have needs, then everyone else is okay. That's wholeness, right? If I don't have a problem and everyone else gets their way, then like that's peace. Like, no, that's not peace. That's quiet. It's easy to mistake peace for quiet. But true peace only comes when you actually put yourself into the picture. When you actually say, like, yeah, this is what I want. I matter. Uh, and I'm not going to fade into the background. I'm going to actually step forward <clears throat> and have an opinion. Uh, the Dalai Lama is kind of the canonical nine. Um, if you're... If you don't recognize yourself or someone you know in the Dalai Lama, uh, nines often struggle with anger, resentment, and stubbornness because the feeling of um, not getting what they want gets pent up. Mm -hmm. And after so long of convincing yourself that you don't matter, it comes out in you know more aggressive ways. Uh, and so that sense of just like wanting to disappear and daydream your life away uh, is really um, like the, the trap that's really easy for type nines to fall into. So your type is like the you are here starting point on the map of the Enneagram. But it's not the end point because um, all of the nine types have different journeys, but the goal is the same. The goal is to not be ruled by your adaptive strategies for getting your needs met that you learned when you were young. The goal is to be in touch with the essence of who you truly are. But to do that, you've got to see how these uh, patterns and strategies and defense mechanisms play out in your life so that you can say, oh, there I go, doing that type five thing again. Let me, you know, like, let me see what I can do to do that less in the future. Um, and so it's a way of seeing the contact lens of like the way that we see the world. Each of these nine different types is really um, a core motivation or a core coping strategy that we learned to get our needs met when we were young and it stays with you forever. Like you're either born with it or you acquire it when you're really young and it does not change, but the way that you deal with it can change. Um, the way that you live your life based on the knowledge of your uh, tendency can change a lot. Okay, so that's, first of all, so interesting. I, from just the descriptions that you gave, the two that sort of like piqued my, I don't know, like whatever my radar about myself were three and seven. So I'd be interested yeah. to, uh, so, okay, so for anyone who's listening that's to this. That's what I would have guessed as well, just based on our conversation so far, because you resonated a lot with um, the stuff, the three stuff that I was saying about like, who are you really when you're not performing for someone else? That's a three thing. Uh, but yeah, threes and sevens are, um, they have a lot of, a lot in common, at least on the surface. So what's the next step for someone who's interested in this work? 
um, you can listen to my podcast all about the Enneagram. It's currently called uh, Wild Crazy Meaningful Enneagram. We're going to rename it. We're going to merge it into our main podcast, which is also going to be renamed. By the time you listen to this, it will hopefully be named The Dervish and the Mermaid. Um, but yeah, if you just go to my website, pacesmith.com, then you can find the podcast on there. Uh, if you want to read a book instead of listen to a podcast, then why are you listening to this? No, but seriously, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, I think the, a great place to start is The Complete Enneagram by Beatrice Chestnut. She wrote a really great intro book on the Enneagram. And does that include some kind of, I mean, I don't know if diagnostic is the right word to be like, okay, this is the, like, to know more about, you know, which one you are. Yeah, there's another book called The Wisdom of the Enneagram by Don Riso and Russ Hudson. That's got some quizzes in it. Um, I find that the best way to know what you are for sure is to read more detailed descriptions than I have time to uh, than I have time or you have patience uh, for on this podcast, um, and then just like see if you really relate to it. Kind of try on um, like for you, Nicole. Like spend a week thinking, hmm, maybe I'm an Enneagram three. How am I trying to perform or achieve? What's my definition of success? Who am I trying to impress? And see if that if looking through the world through that lens helps you. And then next week, try on the lens of Enneagram 7 and say, like, uh, how am I leaving the present moment at this time? Um, is this really freedom or is this keeping my options open? Um, like, why, uh, like, could I be still right here, right now? And ask yourself those kind of questions and see if those seem to get to the root of what your, what your issues are that you keep coming back to over and over and over again. Yeah, so it sounds like this is something that you continue to work with. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, just, just like none of us here have reached total enlightenment, uh, it's the same thing with the Enneagram. As we learn, our personality patterns rule us less. Um, you know, they don't, they don't really completely go away. But it kind of feels like instead of driving the bus, they go to sitting in the back of the bus and you still hear them, that are, and you know I still hear mine that are like, "I wanna, I want you to like me, please love me." And I'm like, "Yeah, yeah, whatever. I'm just gonna be myself." Like on a good day, on a bad day, I sometimes give in. Uh, and so yeah, it's it's totally a journey. There isn't a quiz that can tell it for sure because, like, it's about your deepest core motivations, and you have to really be honest with yourself to yeah, be right. Those are. Yeah, I mean, I think what the the kind of back of the bus analogy that, that you just gave or metaphor or whatever. I think that some, for me, I often fall into the trap of thinking that peace is like an absence of maybe any of this stuff that we're talking about when actually I don't know that I believe that that's true anymore. It's more for me, peace looks like, or at least this like evolution that I'm kind of aiming towards is being able to recognize these things for what they are. And then like, okay, so what, right? Like next <laughs> and be able yeah. to just like sort of in, in as much real time as possible, you know, like what you were saying, Oh, like that's a very like three behavior, you know, whatever, being able to like see it as it's happening, like see your pattern see your triggers and not get, you know, lost two months down them, you know? Right. It's like, you know, we, 
we have this this sense of like, oh, well, I'm on a path. I'm on a spiritual a path of spiritual growth. <clears throat> and then I have a sense of like, well, what's that, what's that look like? Like, what what's the goal? How, what am I going to be like when I'm on this state? And then we can convince ourselves that this is who we want to be or that this is who we are. And then what do you know? We just built another identity cage for ourselves that's like, I'm a spiritual person. <laughs> and, and, and we're trapped in that. And so it's really sneaky to be able to tell the difference between like really being at peace and having an identity of a person who is at peace. <laughs> <laughs> that phrase identity cage like that's, yeah. that's I mean obviously there's a lot that we're talking about that is you know going to be moving around in my mind for the next however long but that I think that is it's something that's so I think applicable and true for everyone right being like even just as a journaling exercise of like okay like what are my identity cages and that that's the kind of stuff that I think are often our personal blind spots right on so the last thing that I wanted to ask you about was something um, that you brought up when we were emailing this week. You posed a question that I thought was really interesting. You said, why is it that every single awesome person I've met has some kind of trauma in their past as like a yeah. potential topic for discussion? And I don't know that I've ever heard it phrased quite that way before. So I'm curious kind of what made you suggest that as something you wanted to talk about or what in that resonates for you? Well, I phrased it as a question because I want to hear your answer, Nicole. Oh, but I right. can I can answer it too if I don't if you don't want to be on the spot first. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it, and then yeah, sure, I can. I mean, I can try to answer it. Yeah, um, it's something that I've wondered about a lot, and my best guess is that it is so easy to just kind of coast in the culture of conformity and complacency. There are entire industries built around keeping us all comfortable so that we don't have to think so that we don't have to, you know, like follow our hearts and strike out on our own. It's like, it's just so easy to just do what everybody else is doing or, you know, do what the media tells us to do or whatever. And what is it going to take to get us out of that rut that is so deep? It's like a Canyon. What's well, going to take something hardcore. It's going to take something extreme because if it's just like, oh, I had a moment one time where like I felt this sense of profound peace and uh, oneness. It's like, oh, well, that was nice. Like, all right, back to Netflix. You know, it's like it needs to be something extreme. <laughs> yeah, the, something the pull of Netflix is real strong. It's got to be something intense to break that. Yo, I hear you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so um, that often takes the form of trauma. You know, like you have like a near-death experience and then you're like, oh my God, I could have died. I need to actually do something with my one wild and precious life. Or, um, you know, uh, in, in my case, it was, um, you know, a feeling of desperation that was that became so intense that I finally couldn't ignore it anymore because I was just like, I just couldn't. I couldn't feel okay in that in in my life situation in my in my job and uh, I just wasn't feeling fulfilled um, and that's not like an obvious trauma but I had trauma practice because I had like three different comings out of various different weird things before <laughs> before I got to that point and so I was already practicing 
uh, you know, I was already <laughs> somewhat practiced in trauma. But yeah, I think that's basically it, is that it takes something extreme to force us out of that canyon of conformity. And, um, and if it's not extreme, we'll just fall back in. Yeah, I agree with that. I think so. Yeah, when you posed that question, I I wasn't sure if it was this is something that's been on my mind or if you were actually asking me the question. So now <laughs> that we're actually talking about this as a question, do you find it true? Do you know any awesome people who don't have trauma in their past? I think it depends how you define trauma. That's what kind of stuck in my head when I because something that I am really sensitive to personally is, and probably because this is I have a tendency to do this, is to think that my pain, right, if we're going to use the word pain, in in various different situations isn't extreme enough to count, right? That like, you know, so I have, you know, what has been diagnosed as, you know, moderate depression, not, you know, a suicide attempt, not a hospitalization, not, you know, so it's very easy for me, this is just one example, to say, it's not that bad. It's not that dramatic. Yeah. It's, you know, and to, and to then not give myself what I need, right, for my mental health. Or, you know, and this has played out, the same thing with drinking. You know, it wasn't like I had this rock bottom, you know, woke up in the gutter, couldn't remember the last five days, you know, had this many DUIs, you know, had lost my job. I feel like, and, but it still was really self-destructive. It was very easy to say, oh, this isn't that bad. It's fine, right? And to not, so I think for me, just like my kind of antenna goes up with the word trauma because I think that that's, I can't be alone in being resistant to, you know, not wanting to think of, either not wanting to think of my own pain or not, or more actively like not thinking that it qualifies, right? So I think like the larger, or what I took as like the larger meaning of the question, absolutely. Like every single awesome person I met definitely has some kind of, you know, pain in their past, which I think everyone has pain. And the difference, you know, if we all have pain, then, and you know, we all have some kind of suffering and it manifests in different ways. Some, you know, maybe on a sliding scale more traumatic than others. The people, you know, that are, let's say like those awesome people or the people I really look up to are the people people who have used that pain as some sort of a springboard, like, you know, like you said, out of the canyon, right, of conformity, Mm -hmm. or basically where it's gotten to the point where, you know, not doing anything about the pain is, you know, has reached the point where that's worse than the fear of doing something about the pain, right? It's like, it's it's been some kind of catalyst for change, right? So in that way, like, 100%, I definitely agree. So in your case, what would you say made the difference between saying, okay, I'm actually going to change this. I'm going to change my life and do something different instead of, oh, well, it doesn't hurt enough, quite bad enough. My, my trauma isn't, doesn't, this, this, my pain doesn't qualify as trauma. I'm just going to suffer some more. Well, I mean, that was the answer for a long time. I mean, if I look at any, any change that I have actually made and I'm, you know, no stranger to making change. It's something I talk about all the time, but it's, it does, it has to come to that point where, you know, the discomfort of making the change, um, uh, let's say, or like the, the, the pain itself is so painful that like the fear of making the change is no longer as bad, right? Like that balance, I'm not being very articulate, but it has to, it. it has to tip in the way of like the pain of not changing outweighs like the fear of changing. And right. I have tried to force that to happen sooner artificially. And it has never, ever, ever, ever worked. Like I will go sliding back into the Canyon very quickly when I'm trying, when it's, I mean, it has to be, I ha- for me, it has to be some kind of a breaking point. And, you know, the comfort for that is if I'm not there yet, I'm not there yet. If I'm struggling to make a change and it's not happening, it's usually because all of the factors, you know, that are still so scary are more intense than the pain itself. It hasn't gotten bad enough. 
Yeah, I think you really nailed it, Nicole. I think breaking point is a better word than trauma. It takes to, you have to hit a breaking point for it to be extreme enough to actually get yourself out of that canyon. Yeah, I think for me, it it has to go from being you know, maybe like an outward thing. Cause you know, what we were talking about, about trauma, you know, this idea of it's not traumatic enough. It's not bad enough. Mm-hmm. Like the mm-hmm. only way that that can be an assertion that you're making is based on what you like think someone else's perception or judgment is right. Like, yes. so it has to, for me, the pain has to get to the point where like internally, like when I'm putting my head on the pillow at night, like I can no longer like be with myself in my current behaviors. And, you know, that at that point, it doesn't matter whether someone else thinks that I drink too much or not. It doesn't matter whether I can count, you know, easily 15 to 20 people that I know that drink the same amount, right? Like, it doesn't matter. It's like when the outside forces stop being what matters because you just like, you can't, it feels, I heard a friend of mine describe it once as wearing a wet paper bag on your whole body, right? Where you just can't, like, you have to just get out of that situation. And like, when that becomes the prevailing feeling where like most waking hours, you like, get me out of this fucking paper bag, right? Like that's when change happens. Yeah. And, and, and there's two options when you've got that, that paper bag, you, uh, one is to change, but the other one is like, give me some anesthetic so that I can't feel this discomfort. And that is basically the Canyon, you know, like so much of our, of our society is set up to make us numb. It's like we're injecting ourselves with with anesthetic every time we just sort of like, you know, veg out or, you know, don't set aside time to really think about how I'm actually feeling and just kind of like go through the motions. Like that, I feel like we're all walking around with wet paper bags on us. And most of us are are just like too doped up on anesthesia to feel it. Yeah, I agree with you completely. I mean, yeah. this could be a whole, I mean, I feel like I could talk to you about this for the next six hours, right? So like for sure. Yeah. This, yeah. It's basically talking shop because, you know, this is what we do. But I mean, and this, but this, this is like the question. I feel like I am obsessed and so much of my work is in this space of this idea of like, how do we close the gap between what we say we want and what we actually do? Right. And like, what? Yeah. No, that's what I call wholehearted. That's, yeah. So it's, it's, it's the same thing, right. That it's like, yep. and this, cause on the surface, it seems like, well, I say I want to do this thing or that I want to be this person or that I want to make this change. So just do it. Right. Like very right. like Nike slogan. But of course, as we all know, like, Maybe it is that simple, but it's certainly not that easy. And I'm very interested in just like the, and of course there's no one answer, right? If there was and someone had it, they would be like a gajillionaire. But it's like this idea of why is it so hard to make change? And to your point, like why are the people that we we often wind up looking up to the most, the ones that have kind of gone through that fire? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and you know, like the the non six hour long version of what I've learned in my own explorations of this question, uh, there's obviously tons of factors, but I think the number one is community. I think that most people are surrounded by people who aren't doing what they really want wholeheartedly, and they're just kind of going with the norm. And that is so hard to resist. We're social animals. But if you surround yourself with people who are wholehearted and doing what they really want, then they'll lift you up instead of pulling you back down into that canyon. Yeah, I can already hear the sort of like echo questions of of people listening and questions that I definitely have sometimes of, 
okay, but I've tried. And how do I find those people? Like, what was that? What was that like for you to actually kind of build that community for yourself? It's like coming home. It's, it just feels like, uh, I mean, I actually had to do it several times because I, I changed enough so that I've, I, I had to, I fell out of alignment with like three or four of the communities that previously felt like home. Um, but yeah, it's, it is, there's nothing like it. It's just like first that feeling of, oh my God, I'm not alone. There are other people. Like I thought I was the only one. I thought I was a freak. I thought no one would understand me. And then just like knowing that there's other people out there, even if I'm not like, you know, super close friends with them, just knowing they exist is already super helpful. And then, um, you know, in my case, being married to one, which is like <clears throat> a blessing every single day. Uh, Kylie and I have so much in common at a heart level and a values level that, um, you know, even through all of the changes, she's always been my, um, my touchstone that helps me, you know, keep on doing the thing. Because without without some kind of support, it's just it's basically impossible. I mean, like I <laughs> I, I would love I, I can I'm not doing an exhaustive search here in my head, but I can't think of anyone who has sustainably done awesome things against the norm without a community of support, or at least one person who is like a strong supporter of them. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, to the point where. It's, you know, and I, I think the, not excuses, that's not the right word, but I was just going to say like the excuses of like, well, but I don't know anyone and there isn't anyone in my town that I've met that, you know, like that I, I get it. It is hard to find yeah. people, but that it's, it's worth it to yeah. try, you know, like to yes, go through yes, yes. whatever the, like the, the vulnerability hangover of continuing to, you know, put yourself in, in the, I mean, I'm a hundred percent giving advice to myself right now. Cause I have felt a little <laughs> bit, you know, you know, lonely and isolated and stuff lately and sort well, of my life is your mission, right? right? Exactly. Of course. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I think that's a great place to start to wrap up. And the way that we end these episodes are with what we call community questions. So it's nine sort of rapid fire questions that, you know, in this case, everyone from season 11 will be answering the same nine questions that the listeners have put forward if you're down for some random questions i'm down bring it what is your current guilty pleasure um guilty pleasure i try not to do i try to do everything wholeheartedly so it's not supposed to be guilty yeah not, okay see. so you but you, uh, yeah I, I agree with you i always have a problem with this phrase like i don't actually mean guilty i mean sort of what that sort of evokes of like a sort of instant gratification-y like feel good like it's just for pleasure just for pleasure, um, I would say watching Father Brown Mysteries on Netflix. I love murder mysteries. All right. There you go. See, perfect guilty pleasure. Um, what's, we've obviously talked a lot about change, but what's an example of a change that you've made in your life that was really, really tough at the time, but so worth it in the end? My word. Uh, how many of them? <laughs> um I think the one that comes most to mind is um, kind of the big one that we talked about of like uh, swallowing my pride and going back to my old day job and saying, hey, can I come back, please? Like that, that was really hard at the time and made me kind of feel like I was betraying myself and my community. 
Uh, but it's so good. Oh, I'm so less stressed out than I was before. It's like, yeah, why choose? Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, I think even there, I mean, there's so much incredible stuff that you shared in this episode, but even just that, like that's a takeaway that, I mean, I, I feel like so many folks even that I know need that just to hear one person say, hey, I, it's not like you leave the nine to five and you do this thing and then you have to stick with it forever. Like just hearing someone else's truth of, okay, well, then I went back and I'm doing this and I'm doing both. All right. Like that to me is unbelievably freeing. Right on. What helps you to stick with a long-term project or goal? The thing that helps me the most is something that I call taste. It's like, sure, when I decided to do this, I'm sure I had good reasons for it. But like, you know, the person who hits the snooze button, the alarm clock is not the same person that set the alarm. Like we're all different people at different times. (laughs) And so um, I need a reminder so that I can like, taste the desire that I had for that goal back when I decided to do it. And this could be like a vision board. It could be like as simple as like writing a little sentence and stick it on a post-it note. Um, It could be a commitment to do the thing that I care about for one minute so that I can remember like, oh yeah, I do like this thing. Now I can really feel it and taste it instead of just like thinking about it as an abstract goal. So yeah, I think that's the... That's the number one thing that helps me the most. Yeah, definitely the person who pushes the snooze button is not the same person who sets the goals the night before. That is real. (laughs) What's something that you're not doing right now because you're afraid? Hmm. I am not... I am not identifying as a Muslim because I am afraid. Sufism is the mystical branch of Islam. Uh, but it is so scary to be a Muslim in America right now that I say, I'm on a mystical spiritual path, which you heard me say. It's, a, it's been recorded <laughs> earlier in the show. Um, and I don't focus on the fact that it is connected to Islam because I am afraid. Mm, Very honest answer. What's one thing that a lot of people do or seem to do that you don't do on purpose? (laughs) Oh, the list goes on. Um, Something that I don't do on purpose. Um... So many things that people do that I don't do, but which one is important? I'm 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 the opposite of stumped. <laughs> <laughs> You're flooded. Things. Yeah, I'm flooded. Something that most people do, do that I don't do on purpose and it doesn't have to be the best answer just a true answer yeah just um mow the lawn (laughs) i love the way that like dandelions and like weird plants look that other people call weeds um i am occasionally required to mow the lawn because of various covenants but um no, I would, if it were up to me, I would just never mow the lawn on purpose. That's fabulous. Um, <laughs> what advice would you give to yourself five years ago? Uh, 
I think I would just give myself a really big hug. Hmm. Five years ago, I was feeling really afraid of what was going to happen. And I don't think I really needed advice. I just needed reassurance. Yeah. I mean, that's so true for basically all the time, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when you look ahead at the next few months, what do you feel most excited about? I am excited about so many things. Um, I think the thing I'm most excited about is my best friend's wedding. Um, she's getting married really soon. And I'm really excited for her. And I'm really excited because some of her best friends are also my best friends and I get to go hang out with them. Uh, and it's going to be wonderful. So the next question is about books. I know we talked about Big Magic and some of the, some of the Enneagram books, but are there any other books, I mean, of any genre that you would say have either had a really big impact on you or that you reread or recommend often? Yeah, I think... Um, two of the books that changed my life that are totally on topic um, are Ishmael and the Story of B by Daniel Quinn. Um, it's good to read them in that order. Ishmael kind of softens you up for the Story of B. Um, and they're books about seeing the contact lens that you see the world through, like how to find out what are the assumptions that you take for granted? Like how can a fish see the water that's around it? Mm, you're not the first one to recommend Ishmael to me. So, all right, I hear it. I hear it. <laughs> you gotta read the sequel. If you got, if you read Ishmael, that's, that is, that's just the appetizer. You got to read the story of B second. Okay. All right. I dwell. So the last question, if you could leave our community, the listeners with one call to action, what would it be? Maybe a question to ask themselves or a small action to take. Hmm. Uh, I would recommend, I think the question that we've been asking all along is what I'm going to end with, which is, who are you when you're not performing a role for somebody else? Yeah, yeah, I'm going to be thinking about that. That's for sure. <laughs> so what's the best place for people to find you and say hi online? Do you have a favorite way to connect with new folks? Uh, yeah, if you just go to pacesmith.com, then you will find all of my stuff and all of the ways that you can get a hold of me. And you, is there anyone that you prefer over anything else? Um, no, just just shotgun it away. I'll find you one way or another. Awesome. I love it. Pace, this was so great. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on the show, Nicole. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and for being part of the Real Talk Radio family. I couldn't do this without you. And as I said way back at the top of the episode, this is now a 100% listener-supported show. The show is made possible by people like Angelica. Hello and welcome. Hi. We are going to do something really fun for me where I get to know you. And so I'm just going to ask you some rapid-fire questions if you're ready. Yeah, absolutely. Go ahead. What is your current guilty pleasure? Mm. Pinterest. <laughs> That's a great answer. What specifically do you find yourself looking at on Pinterest? Um, I'm getting married in a week and a half. And so even though I've like worked really hard to stay away from all the social media, marriage, 
type. Um, I just like looking at flower bouquets and invitation cards and all of that kind of stuff that I'm never going to do it that elaborate way myself, but I just enjoy aesthetically. <laughs> it's fun to pretend through other people, right? <laughs> yep. <laughs> what is your favorite thing to eat for breakfast? Soya yogurt every day. <laughs> oh, and it, what, what kind? Really plain. I love it um, when it's like nice and creamy, potentially with a bit of fruit. Yeah, it's a really nice and light way to start the day. I like that you are a person of morning routine. I am too. I feel like I have smoothies every single morning. And for me to deviate from that, it's like a big deal. <laughs> yeah, likewise. A routine for me is such a crucial part of my everyday. I, it, for my mental health, really need that. Yeah, just I find it helpful to have to make fewer decisions. Absolutely. And I kind of, when I go to bed, I look forward to knowing exactly what I'm going to do the next day. So I'm not a particularly spontaneous person. And um, I get pleasure out of similar things every day, which is a really reliable way of being happy. Yeah, no, <laughs> preach. That's awesome. Um, okay, so if you had an extra $100 or, you know, currency exchange thereabout, and you had to spend it on something fun that's just for you, how would you spend it? Mm, a couple of horseback riding lessons. Um, I have always, I, I am a fan of animals without having had much exposure to them. And I've always had a huge amount of respect for these big animals that are horses and um, would love to learn how to ride them. So I guess a hundred bucks could make for a couple of lessons if I'm lucky. That's so fun. You should definitely do that. See, <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Um, who would you say is one of your favorite people to follow on social media? Um, I don't really use social media. And um, I guess for someone of my age, that's actually quite uncommon. I'm 23 and most people of my age are everywhere on social media. And uh, so I don't really, I don't have a, a Twitter account or, um, or any of that stuff. And so whenever I do use um, Instagram, for example, to look people up, that's Mostly via your podcast, to be honest. So you are probably my most favorite person to follow, as terrible as that sounds. Um, because you're a great hub. So you you introduced me to so many people over um, the course of the podcast. And yeah, social media is kind of a really neat way of um, following the thread and seeing where it leads. Okay, so I'm super interested in this. I have to ask you a follow-up question. Why don't you use social media? What was that decision about? Because you're right, that's definitely not the kind of mainstream choice, right? It doesn't interest me. Um, I, yeah, I like looking at pretty pictures and um, fantasizing about other people's lives. But to be honest, I, I work a lot and I have quite a lovely group of friends here. And so I don't ever really feel the need to. So... The only thing I use is Facebook, and that's basically just an extension of my email inbox. And so, yeah, it doesn't it, it doesn't really give me anything extra, so I don't use it. <laughs> okay, well, I'm obsessed with everything you just said. It's so refreshing to hear someone. I don't know. I mean, clearly, I struggle with social media stuff a lot because it comes up in like every episode of the podcast, as you know. But it uh, it's very refreshing to hear someone just say, "Because I don't want to. It doesn't really interest me. It doesn't bring anything to my life." So, kudos to you. That is a fantastic answer. I think it is really. It really is a cultural thing. So, I grew up in Germany, um, and in the nineties, and 
it wasn't a thing back then. And then I went to boarding school where nobody used it in the early noughties. And I only really started using it when I went to university a couple of years ago. And, um, and university, you know, that kind of correlates with a, a bigger group of friends and real people that you meet in life. So it never really became a habit. And I don't miss it. So interesting. Okay, so the last question, what's one of your favorite books or a book that has had a big impact on you? What should I read? Half of a Yellow Sun by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. Um, it's, a, yeah, the prose is just amazing. I I read a lot um, because I'm, I'm an academic and so I spend a lot of time on papers and um, in the news. And so fiction really is a, is, a, is a beautiful kind of escape from the very cognitive, very, you know, thought heavy every day that I have. And so I like a good story. And I have to admit, I am a bit of a stickler when it comes to language. I really enjoy um, interesting choices, choice of word. Um, but when, when, the, when the story is expressed not only semantically, literally in the words, but when you can also see it on the page and in the word choice. And yeah, so that was a, she's a fantastic storyteller. So I recommend anything from her. I mean, people say I should read all of her books. I haven't had time yet, but that's certainly one to look out for. Okay. See, I love when someone recommends a book that I've never heard of, and then I can add that to my list. So thank you for that. That's awesome. So you are a member of our Patreon support squad, which means that you're one of the people that listeners can thank for making this podcast possible since you make a small and powerful pledge that helps to fund the costs of producing the show each season. And I would love for you to share why you decided to support the show and maybe your favorite thing about being in our little community. I support the show because I don't think we as consumers should take um, material of that quality for granted. And I am a strong believer in putting your money where your mouth is. I think that's the saying. Um, and so I'm very lucky to be able to go to university on a scholarship. And the money that I have left over at the end of the month, I tend to spend on things that I want to continue using, like newspapers, online newspapers or podcasts. And so um, that's why I decided to support your show. Um, because the, a lot of the things that you produce really our own thought processes for me and um, make me discover things I had no idea about. And being part of the Patreon community for me, um, it's wonderful to get access to a bit of the um, the extra material that you put out there. Um, I'm I was a, when you did the survey, so you're quite interested in, in what what your what your people need and want from the from the community. And when you did the survey. I was a huge advocate of the book club, even though I have not yet had time to participate in it. But I'm, I'm, I'm a huge admirer of them. Um, the amount of stuff you read and all the things you put out there, and so being part of the community can can help me get access to even more of your high quality stuff. Oh. I'm really grateful. Thank you so much. Yeah, I mean, thank you for supporting the show. Like I said, if it's when you create something that's listener supported, it's, you know, you guys that make things possible. And yeah, the book club, I was surprised. It was an idea that I had. And when I sent out the survey that you're talking about at the beginning of 2017, just to get a feel from what everyone in the community wanted, because obviously it's your community. So what do you want? And so many people said they wanted the book club, which made me happy because it's been really fun the last couple of months. Yeah, because it does feature quite a lot in the podcast. What do people read? Um, 
really interesting to hear um, you talk about erotic fiction as well. That's something I would really love to explore a bit more. Um, I, I, I think it's part, of, it's part of growing up is to read things that you didn't think you were interested in. And especially with us being all in a huge filter bubble when it comes to the kind of news and generally opinion that we expose ourselves to, hearing from lots of different people what they read is such an enrichment of, of, you know, it just broadens the perspective that we have on life. So I'm a huge advocate. Yeah, I completely agree. It's funny that you bring up the erotic fiction. I, um, I've been thinking that the downside, well, not the downside, the, the challenge of hosting a book club is all the pressure that I put on myself about which books to choose. Right. (laughs) uh, But I think that it would be fun to do a novel from that genre later in the year. I think that would be really fun. Um, I mean, how often does that, especially, you know, even the last couple months, the range of books that we've had, then to throw some erotic fiction in there, that would be fun. So maybe I will do that. And it would be really, really interesting to get a mixed gender perspective on that because I expect that um, even though most of your guests, if I'm not mistaken, are female, there is probably quite a large male um, audience out there. And I would, that would be really interesting to see whether the same kind of stuff works for everyone in erotic fiction. Yeah, I agree. See, you've given me so much to think about and you are brave and joined me for this, which is lovely. So thank you. And to everyone listening, if you love the podcast, if you want to help keep it going, and if you want over 30 hours of bonus content, plus fun stuff like the book club we've been talking about, just go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more for each eight episode season. I can't tell you how much your support means to me, and I can't wait to get to know you better after you've joined our community. So until next time, here's a big virtual hug and a reminder that we're all just doing the best we can, and no matter what, we're in this together. 